listeners, and welcome aboard Costume Station Zero. I'm Bob Mitch, and today I'm joined by a good friend of mine who is a voice artist and actor. You might have heard his voice on The Tonight Show as the announcer, or as Ant-Man on the Avengers animated series. Uh, but he's also a costumer, and I want to talk to him today about, well, quite a wide gamut of stuff here, but uh, both the collecting side and the wearing side. So, Wally Wingert, welcome on board. Thanks, Bob. Happy to be here. Awesome. So, I like to usually start at the very beginning. What got you into costuming? When I was about five years old, I watched the Batman television show in 1966, religiously, and I tried to put together my own Batman costume, but at the age of five, I really didn't have a keen eye for that sort of thing. So, my Batman costume, as a four, five-year-old, consisted of my pants tucked into my Wellington boots, uh, my Batman t-shirt with my mom's belt tied around my waist, my dad's work gloves, um, a bath towel with a safety pin uh, around my neck. <laughs> has to be the bath towel. Yeah, it has to be a bath towel. Long. Uh, the, the shorter hand towel was for Robin. Right. Uh, and uh, my dad's um, folding army cap. You know those army caps that you can fold up and you actually put them? They have a really crude name for them in the military, which I can't say here, but... You know, they, they fold up. It's like the Gomer Pyle hat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I had one of those that I dug out of my dad's army stuff, but I flipped it to the side so it was going across my head as opposed to, you know, straight, straight ahead. So those were my bat ears. Nice. And, and I just, in my imagination, that was my Batman costume. <laughs> so for my birthday, my fifth birthday, my folks actually sprung for an actual Batman mask and cape set. And I had my T-shirt, and I had my little belt, and my boots were tucked in. But I actually had the official Batman cape and the official Batman mask. So uh, that was uh, from then on. I was bitten with not only the acting bug, but also the costuming bug. I'm like, if I'm going to be, you know, do these characters and impersonate these people, I've got to actually have the wardrobe to go along with it. I didn't just want to be an impersonator. So as I got into seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I started actually looking for pieces of clothing of course, around the house, that looked like it could be a Frankenstein jacket, or it looked like it could be a Charlie Chaplin or a Groucho Marx or a Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy jacket. You were already sourcing good materials, yeah. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. And my dad had a good supply of old, you know, suit jackets laying around, and I would throw things together. I think my very first Star Trek outfit was a blue sweatshirt with some rickrack that I had my mom sew around the cuffs of the sleeves, uh, she also sewed on the black collar, and I had like some sort of insignia I'd cut out of some iron-on material. And I had a pair of my mom's winter boots, which were high and black, and a pair of her pants that were black, uh, probably polyester. Mm-hmm. And I would tuck the boots into the pants, but I would blouse out enough of the pant leg to make it look like it was the flare leg over nice. the boots. So. Nice. Yeah, it was it was uh, something that I would always you know worked pretty hard on is to, t- to try and approximate the costumes that I was seeing on television. But you know then I, of course you come out to Los Angeles like oh wow these are the actual fabrics that they used. And so your eye improves over time, but it's you know when you start as a kid you your eye looks a little bit diff- differently at things than they do later because you start looking for of course more detail. As a kid you have a lot of imagination to go along with that. So what you lack in authentic materials, your imagination as a kid will more than make up for. Oh, sure. It's like, oh, to me, this looks like a Star Trek outfit, and this is I'm totally happy with this. When I was playing Barnabas Collins, I found this when, as a kid. I found this old ratty piece of like rayon, black rayon. That was my cape. 
and I had a, a like a sixty nine cent Kmart Barnabas Collins ring that I'd found at the jewelry store, mm-hmm. and I just found a stick that looked like it was the wolf's head cane, and I would run around with the fangs that I got out of the Dark Shadows board game and chase the girls in the neighborhood with my stick. That looked, of course, you know the other neighbors were quite worried because <laughs> I wasn't out, you know, playing football. Right. I was like, "What's wrong with that winger kid?" <laughs> Strange. But so, uh, but you know, even at that age, I was like, "Let's see, what would I rather be doing? Hanging out with a bunch of other boys or chasing girls and biting them on the neck?" And I thought <laughs> uh, I'm much uh, more prone to the latter. <laughs> a lot more fun, I'm sure. Absolutely, even uh, at that age. So you you were always making your own costumes. You never bought a costume from a box or a bag. No, well, the only costumes that you could actually buy from a box or a bag back then, they didn't have rubies and they didn't have all the other stuff that they have now, but the only kind of costumes that you could get at the time came out around Halloween. It was the Ben Cooper Company and also the Collegeville Halloween Company, Mm -hmm. the two main costume and mask uh, companies. And I don't think that I ever recall buying an actual fully boxed mask and costume set because, like Jerry Seinfeld... I didn't understand why the character was wearing his own picture on his costume. Right. You know Seinfeld's bit about Superman, right? Yeah. He's a huge Superman fan. I always wanted, why as a kid, why Superman, on his costume that you'd buy in the store, had his own picture on his costume? Superman never went around with his own picture on his costume. It just didn't look it didn't look right to me. Uh-huh. So uh, what I would do is I'd buy the mask, mm-hmm. which I always thought was cool. I still have a bunch of them today that I consider as kind of pop art I'm hanging up around the house because I like to look at it. It brings back to some good memories and the colors are very vivid. Uh, but the costumes always perplexed me. And I always thought, I, I, I could do better than this. And I recall in about fourth or fifth grade buying a Thor mask but not being that happy with the Thor costume that came in the box. So I made my mom, I think I had my like my jeans on and my boots in the Midwest, everybody wears boots, so mm-hmm. the boots were not a problem. Oh, yeah. And I made up some sort of uh, shirt, and I had, a, like, a belt. My mom dyed a sheet red and made the cape, and I would wear the mask, and then I would make my own hammer. I made my own hammer out of, a, I think, a Kleenex box that I had wrapped with electrical tape, um, and I took, a like, a wood support from the middle of a wooden chair that had fallen apart, and that was my handle. <laughs> I put the Kleenex box on top of the wooden thing and taped it all together, and that was my <clears throat> my Thor hammer. I wish I still had it today, but I'm sure it got um, thrown away shortly after Halloween. That's great. I mean, I, I love the repurposeness of all of these costumes. It really shows a lot of ingenuity and probably keeping it under a, a pretty good budget, I imagine. Yeah, a budget of probably zero, taking yeah. stuff out of the trash and mm-hmm. old clothes that you know, nobody had laying around. In fifth grade, I got cast as the Scarecrow in our Wizard of Oz Production, so I thought, well, I, you know, I've been a Wizard of Oz fan since I was old enough to really be conscious of what was on television. So I said, I got to make this really cool. So I had an old cowboy straw hat that was kind of beat up, repurposed that. I think I had an old pillowcase that I'd found. I'd cut it like a hole out of it for my face, and had had a piece of rope that I would wrap around, you know, tie around my neck to keep to make it look like a bag head, you know. And I got into my mom's makeup kit and found some. You know, some cream mascara or something, mm-hmm. and drew on the triangle nose and some things. And, and I, I remember like going into the bathroom before we would do the play for the rest of the school, and everybody's there just kind of with their costumes and not really paying much attention to actually looking like the character. But I, I was actually pulling a Lon Chaney <laughs> at the age of you know seven or eight. I was in there in the mirror, like putting on the makeup and thinking, why aren't these other kids taking this seriously? Like, I am. This, is, this is a serious theater here. Mm-hmm. So I uh, had the. You know, this, I actually had uh, a friend of mine who was a farmer uh, bring some straw, which was very uncomfortable. If you've ever worn straw, it's just not its not comfortable at not all. Not meant it's to be very, worn. Not meant to be worn. Uh, it's very uh, scratchy, and it gets under your neck, and, and it'll break off in little pieces and actually get in your clothes, and the rest of the day you're kind of itching. So I was, I was the scarecrow. I had an old... Uh, blousey kind of suit jacket that my dad had kind of abandoned and I was I was ready to go I was the scarecrow but costuming had always been extremely extremely important for anything that I was doing any kind of character and I wasn't just even through community theater and stuff that I'd done later I wasn't just happy to let the costumers completely take it and just 
basically wear what they gave me. I was mm-hmm. always like making suggestions or, you know, uh, using a lot of my own stuff or making a lot of my own stuff. When we did Jesus Christ Superstar at the Community Playhouse in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in about 1982, I was still very involved with the design of how the, the priests, you know, would all look. Right. And the director basically just said, well, I want them to kind of look like Kiss without the kabuki makeup. Okay. So I said, mm, okay. So I had made these kind of vinyl PVC kind of back vest things that went under the thing, and the cape actually went over your head with these big silver buckles and had these black pants, and I made these big kind of kiss belts out of vinyl, you know, mm-hmm. with the studs. And, and I'd done... Oh, Elvis Presley was <clears throat> something I'd done as well, my own costume for that when I was about 16 or 17. So I, I was no stranger to the Ronco rhinestone and stud setter, <laughs> you know, with the, you know, with the, with the little hammer and the little thing and, you know. So I had made those those belts for the priests that looked like, like kiss belts. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, when I started doing Elvis, actually Andy Kaufman, I have a letter from him in 1977, and I'd sent him a picture of me doing him and doing Elvis and his comment was where'd you get such a great Elvis suit oh. so I had basically I known I wanted to do Elvis Presley in the high school talent show so I figured out a way to get as many pictures of Elvis as I could because there's no internet back then so I just had to buy these books and study and the, some of the pictures weren't very clear the printing process was kind of shoddy back then so I would just kind of basically dream up the rest in my head what I what I lacked so I bought a white Wrangler denim jacket and a pair of white Sedgefield jeans and I was going to have a two-piece suit like Andy Kaufman had at the time and then I started realizing well wait this is a whole one-piece thing because I couldn't understand when Elvis took his belt off in the Aloha from Hawaii concert where were the seam where the divide was between the jacket and the pants and then right. I realized there is no divide it's a one-piece thing mm-hmm interesting so then I had my mom put all these snaps on my jacket on my pants so I could actually snap the jacket to the pants <laughs> so it was like a jumpsuit mm-hmm. and then the belt of course would, would cover it up and then he's got chains on his belt well I've got to figure out how to do that so I punched a hole in the vinyl I made my own belt mom stitched some of the rhinestones on that there were stitch on rhinestones but the rest, I sat there with basically the Ronco rhinestone and stud setter <laughs> and just nailed these things on night and day and uh, figured out how to put the chains on. I went to Woolworths and bought, you know, f- yards and yards of this metal chain. I linked it around and I would study the pictures. Okay, well, there's one loop here and then it's underneath it is a bigger loop and then it goes this way, this way. So it's just studying, you know, photos and sure. and figuring out what you have available to you at the time, especially in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot. There was Ben Franklin and there was Klein's Big Dollar and there was Woolworths and that was about it for craft stores. If you couldn't find it at those stores, you were kind of out of luck. Woolworths, I think I bought them out of their metal studs probably <laughs> like for two months in a row. They'd, they'd be getting more in and all of a sudden the next day they'd be like, where are these things going? Who's right. And then, you know, of course, Aberdeen was a small town, so then the word spread that I was going to do this Elvis act. So, sure. Oh, it's this Elvis guy. It's it's pretty interesting, but even no matter what I did, plays or whatever, I always had to have some sort of influence in the costuming. Um, it sounds like you were you were relatively self-taught. I mean, it sounds like between what you're probably your mom making some stuff, showing you how to do certain things, and then just just diving in, just figuring it out. My uh, in the family, my grandmother, my mom's mom was the seamstress mm-hmm. because out of necessity, when they you know were very poor and it was the the, the depression and all those other uh, things, living on the farm and all those other instances of you just didn't have any money, she would basically have to make all their own clothes. They couldn't just go buy clothes like we do today. Uh, they, she would make the clothes for the for the kids. Um, my dad still tells me of the day that uh, when you'd finish um, a sack of, like a, a fabric sack of corn or wheat or whatever, mm-hmm. inside, when you turn it inside out, was a pattern for like a shirt or whatever. Oh. So you could use the fabric to make a, a shirt out of when the seed was gone. Nothing goes to waste. Nothing goes to waste. Exactly. That's that depression mentality. Mm-hmm. So I was like, that's kind of cool, actually. So my grandma had to basically sew all this stuff. So I w- when I had really serious stuff that I had to do, I'd always consult with her. Mm-hmm. My mom was a pretty good seamstress as well because she had learned from my grandmother. So she helped me with the Elvis suit. 
Uh, she helped me sew a lot of my puppets, my Muppet puppets, when I was about 18 or 19. I want to be a puppeteer. But, you know, it's, everybody has their limits, and I was looking to produce this whole collection of of Muppets, and my mom was, you know, trying to be a mom, just trying to help me out with some of the stuff. And, I've, you know, all of a sudden she felt like she was an indentured servant having to sew all these puppets. So it, it kind of came to an end after a while, eventually. Mm -hmm. But she was always pretty good about helping me... Um, with stuff, and then eventually, when I started getting into the real serious Elvis stuff, where I was having jumpsuits made, I would go to a seamstress and actually pay them fifty dollars or whatever at the time <laughs> to make these jumpsuits. It was big money to them, and they're like, "Okay, oh sure, whatever." This crazy kid wants a jumpsuit. And wait, um, how old were you during the, this Elvis phase? Uh, I started when I was about sixteen, and by the time I was twenty-one or so, I was pretty much done. Because remember, Elvis died in nineteen seventy-seven, so. By about 1980 or 81, everybody was doing Elvis at that point. Sure. And I was like, you know what? It's no fun anymore. Mm -hmm. It was cool when it was just Andy Coffin and me doing it. Uh -huh. But, but um, other than that, um, now everybody's doing it, and I just don't. It's not fun anymore. Don't want to join the bandwagon. Don't want to join the bandwagon. So as, as my suit progressed, I decided, well, instead of just turning up the collar on the Wrangler denim jacket... I actually want to have one of those big collars like Elvis has. So oh, yeah. I took off the collar. There was another lady, Mrs. Oland, in the neighborhood who was pretty good with a sewing machine. And I would go to her and I would I think I think I would babysit her kids for her in exchange for her like doing work on my Elvis costume. Okay. So that was pretty cool. So she put the big collar on. I think all the studs uh, started to kind of as I would wear the suit and rehearse, they would hurt. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think I had her line it with some soft, like, cotton fabric or whatever. Uh, of course, all the Elvis suits are, are, the real Elvis suits were lined, but I, I didn't know anything about lining. Sure. So all these, sometimes the prongs and the studs would kind of open up and you'd be like, ow, what is that? <laughs> like sticking you in the, so that and the straw. I was like, boy, this, 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 this stinks. Suffering for your art early Suffer and going for screen accuracy. Early. Exactly yeah. right, yeah. yeah. And the cut, and I started looking at the pictures. You know, the cuffs weren't right, so we tailored the cuffs a little bit. Um, I noticed that there was a um, uh, what are the, the the pleat in the side of Elvis's where when he when his leg when the leg of his jumpsuit spreads out, then there's that colored fabric inside yep. the pleat. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that, so I cut in the th thing and had the, some red material put in. I was insane about the whole thing. And now the costume is on a mannequin in the Aberdeen Central Alumni Museum. Oh. So I uh, I sent it to them and said, well, have fun. <laughs> and then I had another two suits made after that. And I remember explicitly sitting on the floor of my folks' house in the living room the night before my big Elvis concert called Elvis Lives in 1980. <laughs> this, I had just gotten the suit back, and it was just the, the flames. The flames had been done on the original of a suit in embroidery, mm -hmm. but I think the lady just cut some flames out of some satin and, and you know stitched them on. So I had to sit there with uh, a bowl of studs, all different sizes, right, right, and a and a nickel, and <laughs> and just punching these things through. Gone was the Ronco rhinestone and stud setter, <laughs> and I was just sitting there listening to Elvis tunes, rehearsing my thing in my head. Punching these things the night before, bending over the prongs with a nickel, punching another one and bending over the nickel. And uh, it wasn't just the jumpsuit, it was the, there was a cape that went with it. Oh, sure. <sighs> a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, worth it. And, uh, you know, in the end, it's like I, I learned a lot, you know, from that whole process. A stepping stone from, from that would be, uh, what did you do about the hair? Did you style your own or get a wig? No, I styled my own. Mm -hmm. um, my hair's always been pretty curly. But I did have a pretty good uh, couple of hairstylists who would actually come in and, you know, would, like, blow it out so it was uh, straighter. Mm -hmm. And I could, you know, I've been able to grow uh, sideburns as a kid, luckily, from a pretty early age. So I was, when I would do a character, I'd always try and look as much like them as possible without any sort of extra stuff. Like, for Andy, I would grease my hair, my own hair back. Um, Elvis, same thing. Yeah, all the characters I did, I'd always use my, my own hair. Um, it was curly when it was dry, but when you'd wet it or grease it or, or blow it dry, it straightened out pretty good. So mm -hmm. it wasn't until years later when I started actually wearing wigs for characters because uh, sometimes the characters would have different color hair. I'm not going to dye my hair, obviously, like Austin Powers. Um, Barnabas, I'm not going to cut it that short. Once I started growing my hair out longer, 
Right. I said, no, I'm not going to cut my hair for this stuff anymore. It's just it's just for fun. But I mean, if it was like for a role in an ongoing television show or something, I'd do it. But just for a weekend at a Dark Shadows convention, I'm, right, like, right. I'm not going to cut my hair short. To, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's it's something I've always been keenly aware of and involved in was the costume stuff. And I just kind of, like I said, self-taught. Just picking stuff up from photos and going, how do they do that? And what, how does this work, work here? And what is stitched there? The, you know, the Star Trek, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. no idea how they attached those weapons to their pants. Sure. I was like, is it magnetic or what is it? So I was like experimenting with <laughs> gluing little bits of metal on the back of my little wood, wooden communicator, my phaser, and I was trying to get like a magnet that I would clip <laughs> to my thing. And it's like, it wasn't... It's not working with the magnet. I'm not sure what, but you know who knew what Velcro was back then. I had no idea. <laughs> but you know, years later, you find that out. And you go, ah, of course, that's what they do. All right, I get it. Didn't have the right screen accurate uh, photos floating around back then. No, not at all. Well, God bless the internet. But you know, back in the old days, you just had to either watch television very closely when the shows were on. Hmm. And I remember watching the certain Star Trek episodes when they show really good close-ups of the props. When the communicator was open, when you get a close-up of the sleeve hitting a button on a panel, mm-hmm. you'd be like, ah, 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 look at that right there. <laughs> uh, and I just thought it was, you know, rickrack that you'd buy, you know, like gold metallic rickrack you'd buy off the spool at Klein's Big Dollar. Right, right. And it worked for a little while, but not knowing that it was actual, you know, uh, embroidered braid that mm-hmm. somebody custom made. Mm-hmm. And then years later, you find people who have figured out how to do this, and they've looked at some of the originals and they have original patterns and now I can go to a gal and get three tunics, one command, one science and one engineering, all the accurate colors from the swatches of the original fabric <laughs> and the original fabric with the sparkly pants material and it's like it's it's so accurate that it's like, well, this is pretty cool. I finally finally made it. Leaps and bounds. But maybe possibly missing a bit of the charm. Uh no, because you feel a sense of completion when you when you go through all those steps to work up to that sure because it's a long way from uh, a sweatshirt with rickrack on oh, the sure. sleeve to sure, actually sure. getting a screen accurate mm-hmm. then you can kind of go ah, I've made it now I can stop and stop obsessing and move on to something else <laughs> always wanted to figure out how they made those Batman cowls the 1966 I would sit there I remember the TV guide photo mm-hmm. with Adam West on the cover of TV guide my grandmother the, the seamstress had a subscription to TV Guide. I remember it was always sitting in the bathroom. Right. I guess like easy reading while you're doing your business. And I would go in there and like, oh my gosh, that's Batman. <laughs> I'd never seen, I mean, you you just don't see pictures of that back in 1967. You just don't see photos of this stuff laying mm-hmm. around everywhere. You can't go, it's like people today who've only known the internet their whole life right. have no idea how rare some of the stuff was and especially in South Dakota you just did not see this anywhere sure. there were no photo books there were no there was nothing so i would stare at the cover of that tv guide for hours on end going how did they make that that mask that batman mask i didn't even know it was a cowl and just looking at the fabrics and the colors and oh, i just don't want one of those someday and then years later you learn through meeting a bunch of people so you fast forward some, you know, 25, 30 years and, hey, you know what? I got a pretty good suit that looks as good, if not better, than what the originals looked. I think this is a good segue to actually talk about the 1960s Batman costume because, you know, you were such a, a guiding force behind really where that craft is now. Um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll let you take it from here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, being on that quest to find the ultimate Batman costume... All, pretty much all my life since the age of five, anyway. I just did as much research as possible, got as many photos as possible, and long about 1979 or 80, when I was making a lot of Muppets, I said, uh, you know, I still want one of those Batman costumes, but I, did, I just didn't know how to go about it. Well, March 1st of 1980, Adam West appeared in Sioux Falls, South Dakota at the World of Wheels um, convention. Mm-hmm. So I was a radio DJ. Okay. So I, I worked out a way to interview him. Now, this is back when Adam was appearing in his costume as Batman, when he was allowed to appear as Batman. So I'm like, well, this is great. Well, of course, when I show up and meet him, and he's got the cowl and everything, I just like, was studying everything, looking at every little thing, trying to make mental notes of, okay, well, that looks like that, and that's that. And 
But the cowl still baffled me. I wasn't still really sure. I'd seen him take it off backstage, which uh-huh. you never saw on the TV show. No, no. It was either on or off. It wasn't half, half you know, mm-hmm. half and half. So when he took it off, it was like seeing, uh, you know, the mall Santa take his beard off. You're like, you're not really Santa. <laughs> <laughs> the curtain opened. Yeah, it, it's the little uh, old man behind the emerald curtain. So... I tried, I didn't want to be rude, but I tried to look at it as much as possible in the ears, and then I got the Viewmaster, and I was looking at that, trying to figure out how things were made. So I think I had a pretty good idea at that point how the whole thing needed to be put together. I got a pair of uh, English riding boots, but in rubber, mm-hmm. not leather, mm-hmm. that you could buy at the local store, because it's, remember, it's farm country, so right. these, are, these things are all over the place. And with a pair of tin snips, I cut them off at an angle, so they had a point, um, I took navy blue satin-looking coat lining, which was nice and thick, but had that kind of satiny blue look, and I just glued it all over these boots. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to figure out how to cover this thing and make it look come out somehow decent. Mm-hmm. So they actually turned out pretty good. Then I went to my grandma and I said, if I had a pair of long johns, like the tunic... And the long johns, could you trace that and then make me this suit? She's like, sure. So I got um, some gray fabric that I liked that was polyester and not it didn't breathe very well at all. It was probably not a wise investment, but it looked good. It looked like the right color. All about the reed. It's all about the reed. So I had her to take a pattern off of these long johns that fit me, and she made the suit with the crotch you know, panel. You'd put it on with a zipper up the back. Because that's what I'd seen Adam do when he took mm-hmm. this thing off. Right. Uh, I made up my own utility belt because I'd had the experience in making Elvis belts. So I thought, well, this is kind of exactly the same thing as an Elvis belt. It's just instead of you know chains and, and rhinestones, there's these little packs that are on it. At, at a young age, you're not so good at uh, determining scale. Sure. So not knowing at the time that the belt was only three inches and the packs were only four inches, I went for like a five-inch thing with a six-inch pack, and it was just this huge <laughs> thing. And proportion. And Yeah, and proportion, exactly. So I didn't know how to make the metal buckle at the time, so I just made a vinyl buckle and put a bat emblem on it. And it looked pretty good, so I also took some satin material, had her make uh, the trunks, uh, the gloves, the cape, and then there was the cowl, and I'm like, I just don't know what to do. So I was experimenting with, like, vinyl and making a vinyl hood. Mm-hmm. And I had had something stitched together by a friend of mine as kind of a test, and it just wasn't holding its shape. And I had it at the radio station one time, and the gal who was working overnights came in and saw that sitting there and went, Oh, bondage clothes for Wally. I'm like, what? <laughs> she thought it was like a, a masticator, masochist, uh, you know, Hood. Not a fan. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, not really. Yeah, I'm, uh, what do they call the guy in, in um, the Tarantino film, The Gimp? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, no, not The Gimp. So I'm like, oh, this just does not work. I don't remember Adam's cowl in 1980 when I met him being being hard necessarily. I just knew that it held its shape really well. Mm-hmm. So I went to a local scuba store. Why there's a scuba store in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, I had no idea. <laughs> but there was like lakes and boating and people would... But I bought like a scuba helmet. Sure. And it's out of uh, something called neoprene, I yeah. think is what they call it. Yeah. But it held its shape pretty well and it was firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was more than what I needed. So I trimmed it off, you know, around the jawline and around the back. And it had the open face... So what I did was I took a Halloween mask that was just a face. It wasn't a a character, but it was a plastic mask. And I covered that in black vinyl, Mm -hmm. left enough vinyl around the edge of the mask to stitch in to the hood. hood, Mm -hmm. And it looked pretty good. And I painted on the eyebrows. And, of course, I'm looking at a Viewmaster all the while doing this and trying to figure out there's just no reference photos so i'm trying That's to brilliant. trying That's to paint brilliant. this thing looking at this stupid viewmaster i'm like i can't figure this out i think there's some blue eyebrows here so i made the ears had the ears stitched on so I showed up with this costume, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant, that's fantastic. And everybody thought it was really something. So 
Uh, I would start to do hospital appearances as Batman. I would go do charity events, and that was kind of the thing. Oh, that there goes Batman. And then I found a friend of mine who came up with a Robin costume, who was a 17-year-old kid who actually came to the radio station to interview me mm-hmm. about a career in radio. And I said, hey, you look like uh, you look like uh, Burt Ward. Have you ever been told that? Have you ever told you'd, be, you'd make a good Robin? He's like, no, but I'm a huge Batman fan. So I said, well, if you ever come up with a Robin costume, let me know. I do a lot of this stuff. It'd be fun to have a, have a Robin to work with. Sure. And in a week, he came up with a Robin costume. He got his mom... He went home and told his mom about it. He's like, well, we're going to make your Robin costume then so you can do this. <laughs> so he showed up with his Robin costume. And now, to this day, he lives out here. He's an actor. His name is Christian Malmin. And I've known him since he was 17, so we're, we're good pals. But And now he's as tall as I am. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's like 40-some. So I was like, wow, Robin grows up, you know? Mm-hmm. But it was, it was fun. And uh, just the kind of thing where you have to stay creative in an environment like Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Otherwise, you, you go nuts. Sure. You know? I think you have to stay creative uh, no matter where you are if you're limited on your time or budget or especially budget. Sure, yeah, yeah, creativity is everything. And I started thinking about how to make uh, Stormtrooper armor. And somebody in one of the casts of one of the plays I was in said something about, I saw a guy at a, at a convention who had made Stormtrooper armor out of milk cartons. Wow. Like he cut milk, plastic milk cartons and kind of heated them up and remolded them. I was like, wow, I was intrigued by that. It's like, that's a lot of work. Yeah. So I moved out here in 1987 with my little Batman costume in tow. By then, I had had the face plate of my cowl replaced because the mask was starting to deteriorate. Mm-hmm. So I'd actually had something made out of... Um, by one of the guys at the Playhouse, by something called Celastic, which is a mask-making material. It's a canvas that you dip in. I don't know if they still have it or not, but you dip it. it in, it's in strips or a chunk of it. You dip it in um, acetone, and you get it all flexible. Then you put it over a mold or a, a form, and then let it dry, and then you pull it up, and it's hard, mm-hmm. and it keeps the form. Okay. Uh, they do it for a lot of mask-making in theater productions. And then you can paint it or sand it or do whatever you want to with it. It's amazing stuff. So I found some of the Celastic, and I had the front of the cowl made uh, with that. So then I covered that with, I think, black vinyl and put that into the hood. And then I started thinking about ways to change that because the hood was starting to get kind of ratty. Sure, sure. So 1989, Tim Burton's um, Batman movie comes out. And I'm not that interested in that one. Mm-hmm. But there's a radio station in town that was re-premiering the 1966 Batman film at a theater across town. So I decided I was going to go to that one instead. Uh, Adam West wasn't there, but Burt Ward was there. That's where I met Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith, Lee Merriweather, Stanley Ralph Ross. It was a great evening. Wow, that must have been awesome. It was unbelievable just standing around with... You know, Burgess Meredith, of course, I was in, in the group of people who had helped put it together, so I was in kind of the VIP section, just kind of standing around watching the whole thing go on and having my soda and talking to this guy, and I said, oh, this is this is really something, this is a dream come true. He says, yes, this is quite nice, isn't it? <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, this is great. Did, did you work on the film? Yeah, yes. I said, were you the director? I thought he was Leslie Martinson. Yeah who I thought might have been British at the time, but I wasn't sure. He says, no, my name is Jen Kemp. I did all the costumes. I'm oh! like, what? 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 I, I like fell to my knees and I'm like, oh, <laughs> genuflecting. The clouds parted. Yes, the clouds parted. And I said, I've waited since I was five years old to meet you. How did you make that cowl? It's <laughs> like the question I've been wanting to ask all these years. Oh, well, there's a fiberglass uh, shell with oh, I'm like good. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, uh, hold that thought. Um, here, here's my number. I want to interview you, and I'll, I'll pay you to do it. So I, I actually paid him, and he thought, well, okay, sure, to sit down with me with a tape recorder and just tell me everything wow. that I wanted to know. And I still have those cassettes somewhere. I mean, there's like two full cassettes of information. Mm. And about how not only he did the Batman costume, but also the Robin costume and the villain costumes and everything. Wow. Um, Quite the gamut. Like, yeah. What a stroke of luck. What a stroke of luck. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but he still had his book of contacts for all of the stores that he bought all the original materials oh, from. Wow. Where he had the gloves made, where he had the boots made, where he got the fabrics, da 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 da. Oh, now, gold mine. Sorry. Gold mine. Exactly right. 
I it was it was amazing stuff. Now some of these this was eighty nine. He got the stuff made in sixty six. Some of these manufacturers, these vendors, were not in existence anymore. For example, hammer gloves was on Melrose in Hollywood. They were no longer in existence. But he says, well, I, I, my wife Marjorie uh, sews, and I, I remember how the gloves were made, so we can, we can make you gloves. I go, well, that's really great. So Jen and I actually became r- pretty good friends. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, if people are really curious about this stuff and what you created for this show, if you you know, put some a presentation together, you'd probably be hired to speak at some of these conventions, and fans would want to meet you. So he, he, I said, did you keep anything in the show? Oh, oh no, I, I didn't do that. Um, and it was intimated that that would be improper. Yeah. You know, that, that there just wouldn't be the thing to do for a British gentleman to, uh-huh. uh, you know. But he said, uh, he showed me all the fabrics that they had, and he went to some of the stores with me. International Silks and Woolens was one of the places that was still in business. And still is. I, still is. I don't know if Safwat is still over there, but he took me over to meet Safwat, who was there in the 60s and helped Jan pick out all the fabrics for all the stuff. Mm. So he showed me this uh, stuff called Jumbo Spandex, which is not the spandex that we know today, which is thin, like almost bathing suit material. Mm-hmm. It was also called Super Satin. It was a really thick, satiny, stretchy material that was stretchy only from one way, not not two ways. Okay. But it had a lot of stretch, and it looked like satin, but it was it was super heavy duty. So that's the stuff that he bought for Batman's cowl, trunks, and gloves, mm-hmm. because that stuff needed to have some stretch to form to the body. Mm-hmm. So he said, "Well, I just used Capizio tights and leotards and had them dyed for the Riddler costume and for the." Batman costume and for Robin's tights and we went to Capizio and of course in 1989 the tights weren't quite the quality that they were back in 66 they were a lot thicker and more durable back then seems like everything was more durable back then everything was more durable back then well everything they get cheap you know over time Mm -hmm. so in 89 I was having to buy two of everything Mm -hmm. because if it wasn't wearing out right away because I was doing Batman on a fairly regular basis in 89 for parties and stuff Mm -hmm. because the Batman thing was was hot again oh sure and a lot of people at that time didn't really delineate between the Tim Burton Batman and the Adam West Batman because you know since Batman was all the rage again the Batman TV series was back on the air in syndication oh yeah it it was very popular yeah I remember that in my area too right but Kids, a lot of kids were scared by the Tim Burton Batman in things that they would see on TV. It's like, well, that's kind of scary and dark. I don't know if I like that, but I like that happy Batman, yeah. <laughs> you know, with the, with the blue and Robin. Right. I remember coming up to a party with my friend Zach, who was Robin, and ringing the, the bell. And uh, the intercom said, um, hello. And I said, this is Batman speaking. <laughs> and uh, she goes, is Robin with you? Uh, yes, he is. And she goes, thank God, come in. <laughs> because the kids were, oh, Batman's coming to your party. No, no, no. Because they were all scared. That thing was a big scary Batman. Uh-huh. But but said, no, but Robin's going to be with him. Oh, okay. You know, because that that's why Bob Kane created Robin in the first place, was so the kids could see the adventures kind of through his eyes. Oh, sure. It's like, wow, if that kid could be Batman's friend, so could I. Sure, sure. So it was, it was. Uh, that's why he was, he was added to take down some of the darker elements in the early, in the early comics. It was, it was quite an adventure with Jan running around, and he was talking about the, the fiberglass shell and all that, that stuff. So, I actually had my head cast, and had a shell made up for me, mm-hmm. and used, you know, all the. A lot of the materials that he had, he had told me about. Uh, he helped me make the gloves, uh, had the trunks made. So I came up with a pretty cool, at the time, Batman costume. Oh, and, and you went to Durant's for the boots, right? Uh, yes, I ended up going to Durant's. The original boot maker was out of business, mm-hmm. but I found out uh, about Durant's through a friend of mine who had also done some costuming named Clint Young. He had found Durant's to do some kiss boots or something, and then mm-hmm. Durant was uh, capable of doing all these other types of boots as well. So I had the boots done at Duran's, the tights were Capizio, the belt I had pretty much made, Clint helped with the belt, because he had uh, patterns off of a couple of original belts. Oh, wow. And I'm like, it's so small. It's mm-hmm. like, no, it's only three inches wide leather, and the packs are four inches, and the dolls are four inches. I'm thinking about my old thing, five mm-hmm. inches and six inches. Because you get used to it. You get used to it. It's mm-hmm. like, it seems so small, but it does you know, fit a lot better. And the... Uh, it's just there's so many questions I had for Jan 
about why the cowls weren't consistent looking, like mm -hmm. the eyebrows were all different, the nose markings were all different. Mm -hmm. And he basically said that they were in such a rush to get those shows done and meet the deadline that there was just no time for consistency. <laughs> they'd say, we need another cowl, make up another cowl. Okay, so they'd make another cowl, they had the patterns, they'd give it to the painter, and they go, well, what's it look like? Uh, I don't know, I think it's some black hair and some blue eyebrows and a thing. <laughs> and and there, were, there was no standard to follow. They didn't have I guess they didn't. photos, huh? Yeah, they didn't, they didn't have their own reference photos. Mm -hmm. They were in such a rush. That's why some of the utility belts look different, some of the things, just, there's not a lot of consistency. Adam said that the first set of gloves that he had had smooth leather palms. Hmm. And he said it, it was okay, but it just wasn't grippy enough, mm -hmm. he said. It's, I wanted something grippier. So then they decided to use the suede side sure. of the gloves, and uh, that seemed to work a lot better as far as being able to hold on to stuff. But just pretty amazing. There was a gal that uh, worked for the, the Hammers, Mr. and Mrs. Hammer, Hammer Gloves, mm -hmm. named uh, Dorothy, who actually ended up buying the business from the Hammers okay. and starting uh, her own company called Gaspar Gloves, Gloves by Gaspar. Of course, yeah. And I found her like years later after, you know, searching and searching, uh, never finding anything. And somebody just happened to say, oh, yeah, there's this gal that makes gloves and you might want to check it out. Mm -hmm. And after talking to her, saying, oh, yeah, well, I used to work there and, and bought the company from Mr. and Mrs. Hammer. I was like, wow. <laughs> and she showed me the original pattern for Adam's bat gloves oh. drawn on a newspaper. Wow. Yeah. They had drawn the pattern on a piece of, like, old newspaper. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of drawn out, sketched out, and cut out. And it was written in pen, Adam West, 1965. Wow. And I'm like, you know, if somebody had tried to fake these, they would have said 1966. Yeah. But because it said 1965, when they actually filmed it, mm -hmm. I'm like, that's pretty cool. And she said that they had uh, always made the Robin gloves, the gauntlet gloves, since the beginning of time. And they just decided, hey, you already have a model of glove that is going to work for this Robin sure. character, so we don't have to do anything custom. Uh, but she said that they only came in white or black at the time. Mm -hmm. And Jan explained to me that they didn't have a made in green for Robin. They would buy the black ones and overspray them with green. Huh. Which answered another question I always had is, why are the gloves so dark for <laughs> Robin? It didn't match any of the other green stuff. Yeah. Well, that would explain why. Because as he would move around and grab stuff some of that green would come off and you'd start to see the black come through so mm -hmm. if you're overspraying another color onto black it's going to take on a real kind of dark hue anyway right so i thought well that explains that so just all the other stuff that he had said about making costumes for for um victor buono as king tut well of course the costume was was kind of big and flowy anyway sure, but sure. victor buono was a huge guy right so he had all of his, the seamstresses at Fox working on these King Tut costumes, and uh, he would come in to supervise, and they started calling him Omar the Tent Maker <laughs> <laughs> because it was all his fabric for this huge guy. And he said one of the most pleasant experiences was costuming Liberace for a Deadly Ringer uh, episode with the fingers, something. Yeah. He played fingers, and then he played the, uh, the other guy. Chandel. <laughs> and he said that um, Lee, who he called him, said, call, call me Lee. He went over to his house and looked at his entire wardrobe room mm -hmm. to see if there's anything he wanted to use. He said it was just rooms and rooms and rooms of all these elaborate costumes. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, actually, uh, for fingers, I'd kind of like to put you in just a regular shark skin suit. And Liberace thought that was just delightful. He thought that was, you know, here's this great, all these furs and jewels and all this stuff. But he was tickled to death that he got to wear like a cheesy looking shark skin suit. You know? <laughs> so he thought that was really great for the character. Mm -hmm. So uh, just so many, you know, great stories about, you know, costuming all these terrific people in the show. So he had made replica sketches mm -hmm. of what his original designs looked like. And uh, we photographed them into slide format and... He did a couple of presentations where I actually showed the slides up on the up on the screen. But he explained that they had cast Adam's head. Mm -hmm. They had made a fiberglass shell. They had uh, covered it with this with this fabric that had been dyed blue. Right. He said that the the blue dye in the 
acetate-based stretch satin uh, had a chemical reaction and wouldn't stay blue for very long. It started to kind of turn purple and then eventually kind of a berry color. So they were constantly having to recover the cowls and repaint and the whole thing. Hmm. So I thought, well, I don't think I'm going to be using that material then because I don't want my cowl, I can't afford to have it recovered every couple of years yeah. when it turns purple. But there was some sort of chemical reaction with that color of blue, with that fabric, with the acetate in it, that it didn't it didn't gel. So, but it was good enough for you know television for a couple episodes. So basically you're saying that um, what survives costume-wise or cowl-wise from the Batman TV show, you're going to find it today in a berry color. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be kind of a purplish-reddish berry color. Um, and if you see anything that purports to be from that era that's original and it's still navy blue, it's probably not real. Uh, because that particular type of fabric with that dye job i you know he died i died the gloves and the trunks that i made for my suit i made i did make out of the jumbo spandex mm -hmm. and had him died with jan's um we went down to the dye shop he looked through the books of colors and said yeah that's close to the color that it was so we dyed my fabric to that color mm -hmm. and sure enough if you look at my gloves they're starting to turn wow so there was just something about that dye and they had a strange thing but you know for television who cares sure you know? sure they've got the money to just recover it whenever they got the fabric they got the seamstresses it's easy to do mm -hmm. and you just buy more and as long as it's good for the completion of this episode by the time you shoot another one you have it recovered it's i mean it's it's a factory exactly me on the other hand i i, I wasn't able to really do that <laughs> i didn't have a television budget to work with how the needs of a production uh, schedule completely differs with the needs of someone wearing it at an appearance e or on a convention floor. Exactly right. Yeah. And the one thing you don't have on a convention floor is the constant army of attendants with blow dryers and uh, sponges and stuff to keep you sweat free and you know adam had a team of people who would between takes <laughs> you know blow under his arms uh -huh. blow up underneath his cowl mm -hmm. you know to keep everything uh cool so he told me about the fiberglass shell so i had a shell made out of that scholastic material because mm -hmm. i didn't know who could do fiberglass and i said what is that thing in the ear the bat ear, there's like a little ridge there. He said, oh, that's a staple. <laughs> we, we, we made the ear and then put a staple in it to keep it down to the... It's like, of course it's a staple. <laughs> so I, you know, when I made mine, I put the staple in so it would look kind of like the thing and have that little bumpy thing in there. Mm -hmm. uh, what else did he say about the, uh, the cowl that was really interesting? Oh, oh, he's talking about the cape. And I would always notice on the show, when Batman would turn his back to the camera... There was a line about probably seven inches down from the nap of his neck. Mm -hmm. About seven inches down, there was a line going across the cape. Mm -hmm. And I thought, is that a flaw in the fabric or what is that? So I asked Jan, he said, that's fish line. I said, what? He mm -hmm. said, yeah, in order to keep the cape, which was uh, snapped down, right. in order to keep it from unsnapping and falling forward during a take, they would take little gold safety pins underneath the cape, tie fish line to it, and fasten it to the other side of the cape so the cape wouldn't accidentally fall forward. <laughs> Is that amazing? I'm like, it racked my brain. I thought it was something maybe under the cape sure. that was making that impression. Sure. Fabulous. <laughs> so, <laughs> all these questions, you know, answered finally. Tricks of the trade. It sure is. And, you know, questions about the utility belt and just all the, all the different things were, were fabulous. And, you know, finding out years later after talking to Paul Michael Glazer about similar questions I had about the clothes that Starsky would wear mm -hmm. was another moment. I just, just when I thought, oh, you know, I'm 50 now, nothing, I know everything, nothing's going to thrill me anymore, I've done it all, I'm done. Famous last words. Famous last words. Until you get some time with Paul Michael Glazer a weekend in Chicago at an appearance and you're sitting around going, hey, Paul, um, <laughs> the sweater, uh... <laughs> What's the story? I just got it at Alvara Street and just would wear it around. I happened to wear it to the audition for Starsky and Hutch, and they said, we love the sweater. You're hired. Can you wear the sweater in the movie? <laughs> sure, I'll bring it. And he unwittingly starts an entire national you know, uh, fashion trend mm -hmm. with that big shawl neck yeah. Mexican-made you know, sweater. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I studied so much of this. Even when I was like 15, 16, trying to dress like Starsky from Starsky and Hutch, I studied all of his clothes every week. And, you know, where would you get that sweater? I knew I knew that his watch band was 
smooth and silver, and I thought, I can't find a watch band like that anywhere. They all have little links in them. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking that maybe there's links that I'm just not seeing. Is it leather? What is it? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Paul, the watch band, what what was it? He says, I had a silversmith make it up. Hmm. It was like all silver. I was like, damn you. Because <laughs> do you know how much, how long I looked as a 14-year-old kid to try and find a watch band like that? <laughs> And I said, how would you get it on? He said, oh, just a little, like, twisty knob that you'd put it together. And like, oh, man. Like, finally, after all these years, I'm uh -huh. finally starting to learn. And he told the costumers of Starsky and Hutch, uh, I just want to be comfortable. Um, right. Let David Soul be the clothes horse. <laughs> I just want to be comfortable. So they put him in jeans. Sure. Starsky was the more organic character with... You know the cottons and the mm -hmm. wools and the things, and and Hutch was more the leathers and the you know the corduroys and that kind of stuff. So um, it was. He said, I "said The shoes. You got to tell me about the shoes. How did you get the shoes?" He says, "Well, I'm an idiot. Um, Adidas came to me when we started the show and said you can pick any shoe you want from our selection for whatever you whatever you want. You, any shoe, it's yours." So I said, I went in to look at their selection. I looked around. I said, oh, those look nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he put them on. He says, Stu, bad move. They had no support. <laughs> they had no kind of <laughs> anywhere. So uh, he's twisting his ankle. He's pulling ligaments. He's ruining tendons because they're just, there's just no support to these things. They looked cool as heck. Mm -hmm. But they just had, they weren't a very good supportive shoe like you get today with arch supports and, you know, layers and layers of this. And it's all like ergonomically designed. Right. Nah, they weren't. They were just these shoes. But they looked cool as heck. So finally, you know, answering all these great questions about uh, stuff that I always wanted to know as a kid. It's like, where did you get all this stuff? Who made this? It's always eye-opening, I think, to learn the answers because, you know, just when you think, oh, this had to be specially made half the time, no, it's it's off the rack from some stall. Yeah. And then when you think, oh, that had to be something that was off the rack, no, that was custom-made. Yeah, always this weird exactly, play, yeah, yeah. You know? Well, uh, Paul said that after the show went into production, mm -hmm. uh, they went down to Elvera Street and bought, like, another 12 sweaters of course. just to have, mm -hmm. which would explain why in the pilot his sweater's kind of dingy, mm -hmm. but then in the show it's kind of brighter white. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, is it the different lighting? Maybe the mood lighting of the kind of to keep it kind of dark and mysterious in the pilot, and then they went to sit in a. Man, it was all all new sweaters. All new sweaters. So it's pretty uh, pretty interesting to hear all the all the news about all that stuff. But yeah, I've always been keenly aware of that kind of so that because the costume to me is as much of the character as the actor portraying the character. Because mm -hmm. sometimes the costume is is a character in and of itself. Sure. Yeah. Nicholson told Keaton. Uh, when they started the Batman movie, he's like, don't worry, you'll be fine. Just get in that costume and let let it do the acting. <laughs> <laughs> in that costume especially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, you, you have your own uh, Starsky sweater, right? I do. Luckily, there's a guy who's uh, a Torino owner, Grand Torino, the car that was used in Starsky and Hutch. The car still has a huge, huge following, so everybody tries to uh, get a... 74, 75, 76 Grand Torino. They have them painted up in the same paint scheme, the red with the white stripe. Uh, I finally got one about a year ago. It's the greatest thing. Drive around because it just makes people smile and you get the thumbs up. And oh, of course. Fantastic. It's not the kind of car you drive around if you're looking to hide. Mm -hmm. So this guy said, well, in order to really complete the visual of having this car, I should have a sweater. Yeah. So he looked all around and he, he just didn't know that they weren't making these sweaters anymore. So he just happened to contact a place in Mexico, I guess, that he had seen online or something. And he got a lady down there named Ruth and said, Hey, uh, I want to send you a picture of a sweater I'd like to have made up. So he sends her this picture and he calls her back. Did you get the picture? She says, Oh, yeah. No, that's the Starsky sweater. He's like, You know about this? Oh, yeah. We make those all the time. What? Really? Still? <laughs> that's weird. So she knew exactly what the design was. She knew exactly. She was very familiar with it. Mm -hmm. So uh, he found a supplier of little... Mexican knitting ladies <laughs> who will just sit there and sit down there all the time and just knit these sweaters. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. Out of, you know, wool that's that's freshly spun out of, you know, of yarn that's freshly spun out of uh, fresh wool. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'd get these sweaters and they'd come from Mexico. El Gerongo, I think, is the name of the company. And you'd still have little, like, seeds and twigs, yeah. like, in the wool. You're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I feel like I'm the scarecrow again, picking this <laughs> straw out of my thing. Because a character. It is. Uh, it, it absolutely does. So 
the first one I got was was pretty good, and I said, well, I think the colors are wrong in this because I wanted it to be as accurate as uh -huh. possible. Yeah. Because I'm looking at the original Paul photos, and I'm looking at this sweater, and while the designs are similar, she used a dark brown with a gray, but it's actually black with a gray, mm -hmm. and the the barbs on the collar were brown, but the barbs are actually gray. So I said, well, he, I want to have my own custom one done if you can change the pattern just a little bit so they said that well dark brown is about as black as a sheep gets mm -hmm. i mean we can custom dye stuff but it's not gonna like oh, no 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 what what as black as you can get it to offset the gray so i did get another sweater that is a lot blacker the black is a lot blacker and the gray is of course on the barbs and the design so so that's the one i'm i'm the happiest with but it ended up being a little too big for me. So mm -hmm. while it looks better, it's a little too big. The other one fits better, mm -hmm. but it's the wrong color. But so I'll probably never have the perfect one. But <laughs> I mean, from where I was when I was a little kid trying mm -hmm. to find one of those sweaters, it's it's fine by me. Mm -hmm. Or I just go, you know, like the Batman costume. I finally got my ultimate, and that's that's good for me. So yeah, nowadays you have your Batman costume uh, on display with all the great bat toys. Yes, I uh, we took Adam's head cast back in 1995 because he wanted a replica bat costume to tour with. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, that'd be really awesome. So we helped him put together because he had seen what I had done so far with Jan Kemp and said, well, you're the guy that would know how to recreate one of these better than anybody. So um, we cast his head. Uh, but we didn't do it in the traditional casting process with the goop on your face and the and the plaster bandage. This was done by a digital process at a place called Cyber Effects, where you're scanned, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, we scanned Adam's head, got a pretty good likeness. Uh, David Miller, who's a makeup artist, did uh, Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street, did a bunch of other films. He said, I'd love to get an Adam West bust, and I'll do all the work for free just to get a copy of the bust, just mm -hmm. to have in my collection. Mm -hmm. So we got Adam's head, uh, his, his head cast. Uh, David Miller sculpted on the shell right. of how the shell would look, and then made the, made the negative, and uh, then made, made the buck from that, and then we did these... Um, styrene vacuum formed shells and Adam said he actually liked those better because if he did ever put it on uh, it was a lot lighter than the fiberglass he said the fiberglass was like wearing a motorcycle helmet on your head it was just so heavy and hot and mm -hmm. it didn't breathe sure years later after looking at some of the original uh, materials and one original cowl in particular belongs to my friend Mark Hardiman in San Francisco which I believe was a third season cowl not only had they expanded the shell a little bit from what I think they did originally. Adam had mentioned that the first cowls were kind of confining. They were in too tight on the nose, the eyes didn't fit right, so they they ended up making it a little bit bigger to give him a little more room in there. And the third season cowl that I've seen and you've seen mm -hmm. has a like a construction worker helmet band on the inside. Yeah, right. Where you can kind of adjust it to, to fit on your head and it just kind of floats there. And it's not really conf confining any of your facial features. And furthermore, it has these tiny little microscopic holes everywhere for ventilation hmm. underneath the fabric, mm -hmm. which is another thing I've, I was never familiar with, which shows you even over the course of three seasons, they were still modifying these costume pieces to, to make the actors more comfortable and make them feel a little better. They also had taken the turtleneck off of the leotards for Batman, which was that scratchy kind of wool, stretchy stuff. Uh -huh. Uh, and actually put velvet there mm -hmm. as the as the neck uh, turtleneck. So some of the the one that Mark Hardiman has is still the scratchy turtleneck, mm -hmm. but I've seen some of them that had been actually replaced by the velvet to feel a little little better on the neck for comfort. Sure. For comfort, yeah. Mm -hmm. A show like that, the costumes are probably constantly in flux mm -hmm. of like, well, we know these are restrictive, but how do we make them less restrictive? Even Burt Ward's Robin mask, they started. I think it wasn't until third season they started opening the eye holes quite a bit. Right. So you could see more of his eyes mm -hmm. and it, and he could express uh, emotions better. So it's all uh, it's all a great process, this, uh, this industry. And that's where we lose the signal for this week's episode. 
be here next time for part two of my three-part chat with Wally Wingert. We'll be discussing Beetlejuice, Tony Clifton, and a whole lot more. Uh, if you want to find out more about Wally, just go to www.wallyontheweb.com. Or if you have any comments or suggestions, just go to www.costumestationzero.com. Thank you very much. Signing off. See you next time. Yeah.